When I ran down the street naked during a manic psychosis, I had no intention of writing, let alone acting in a play about it. When I share my story of mental illness, when people share their stories with me, I gain strength, validation, and a sense of purpose and wholeness. There's a collective hunger to have mental illness brought out of the proverbial closet, to exchange information and share stories. There is also a fear of it. You are an artist of change, even if you've never considered yourself creative. If or when you share a part of your story, you are changing the tapestry of the world. Excerpts from Victoria Maxwell, Psychology Today, 2010. Welcome to Redeeming Disorder, the podcast where we share real stories of mental disorder to overcome stigma, redeem perceptions, and start a conversation. Hey, my name is Spencer Bledsoe. I'm a 24-year-old in Chicago. I'm a couple years out of college, and I was on the TV show Survivor a couple times. Um, I've been interested in mental disorder for a long time, pretty much since childhood, and uh, excited about this podcast. Yeah, my name is uh, Laura Bochansky. I'm Spencer's co-host. And we actually met at a Survivor uh, geek camp uh, this past <laughs> summer. It's called Durham Warrior Challenge. You should definitely check it out if you're a Survivor fan. It's in Maine. But um, I went there. Uh, Spencer and I were opponents. Um, I'm a, f- a health coach and I run an online health coaching company called Be Free Health Coaching. Which that that's what you should check out. Definitely Abs- check out Be yeah, Free Health absolutely. Coaching. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But, um, but yeah, I so I I've had a lot of experiences with mental disorders as well. And um, so we ended up talking about it and we decided to start this podcast. Yep. Yeah, it was like one night we were supposed to be um, playing this like mock survivor game and we were like tired of lying to people and started talking about mental illness and realized there was a lot we wanted to say about it, a lot that we felt could be said about it. Um, so that's what we want to do. We want to have uh, guests on this podcast every week and each week talk about what they experience and go through it with them and get a personal sort of feel to it that you wouldn't get from, you know, WebMD. Exactly. I think we we both think that sharing stories is so powerful. And, you know, you might hear somebody's story, you might relate to it, you might not. But either way, stories can really change the world. And um, especially with mental disorders, we're hoping to see that stigma um, go away. Yeah. And it's like the fact that you could relate to it or you could not is, I think, what's going to be really good that if you talk to both those groups, stigma is what keeps those groups apart. It's what keeps the people who haven't suffered from mental disorder not understanding it and thinking of it as this fixed thing that they don't actually hear about firsthand. Stigma really keeps uh, people who have mental disorder their experience under wraps and it creates this really like sharp dichotomy between how they feel and the image they're putting outward so we want to sort of bring those together and give a real sense of people's experiences i mean i think 
both um, you're going to hear from both Spencer and my story that mental disorder is really about a journey. It's an ebb and a flow. And so it's not like this fixed thing. And so um, we're hoping be depressed and not uh, be comatose on the floor every day. Exactly. It's ups and downs. And exactly. And I think, um, you know, we're hoping that just when you hear somebody's story, you're going to be able to enter into that journey and understand it even better. Yeah. So yeah, what we're going to do for this first episode is we're actually going to interview each other. Um, we're not cool enough yet to have guests, so we're <laughs> <laughs> we'll have guests very soon. But for this first one, we're going to show you sort of how we see these episodes going, what we want to do, and interview each other about our experiences with mental illness. Yeah, and um, so it was before we start, um, I thought it was pretty funny today we were at a park and some girl came up to Spencer and was like hey are you Spencer from Survivor can I get a picture from you and I'm not I'm no celebrity so I was like whoa what's going on here nor am I (laughs) (laughs) but um but I do think probably some people are who are listening are wondering Spencer why do you want to do this podcast like when did why not a Survivor podcast like what why is this so important to you yeah subject matter so I mean I'd say one part of it is I think the two aren't that different in that, you know, what they can accomplish where a lot of people who watch um, reality TV or Survivor, a lot of what I've noticed is they are looking for a connection to people. And when I meet people, oftentimes they experienced a very real bond uh, with someone they watched on one of these shows. And I think it's because they're watching something authentic. It's because they're watching something that has real effects on real lives. And I don't think it would be so different with interviewing people who have struggled with mental disorder. When you listen to someone who has a mental disorder talk about their direct experience, I think you can get to know them and get to understand in a way that you can't when you're watching a TV show that depicts it or when you're watching... um, you know, a, a movie or just reading about what these conditions are supposed to be like. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking for that experience of reality and that mm-hmm. conveying of someone's real experience that you would find on Survivor, but to sort of gear it towards something that's really important to me, which brings it to the other part of why I'm interested in this, which is it's an important issue to me. Um, I do have a past with mental disorder and many people in my family suffer from mental disorders. So I think it's really important both personally and in the world with such a large percentage of the population suffering from these things and a larger percentage suffering from these things than you would know from what you actually see out there. Mm -hmm. I think let's just dive into your story. Um, So what was your first experience or exposure to mental illness, mental disorder in general? Sure. Um, So my experience with it really was when I was younger. Um, I did have some things in childhood that confused me. Um, like how old were you about? So the with the actual experience of depression, I was 10. Um, but it really goes back, you know, before that with when I was four, my parents had a divorce. Um, it was a really uh, sort of hard divorce, a little bit of a bitter divorce. Mm-hmm. Um and between that and uh, step parents entering the picture, um, a lot of like back and forth, and with me, you know, as a child being in the middle of it, it was confusing. Turmoil. And, uh, sure. And uh, you know, by the time I was ten and trying to sort of make sense of it all, 
I found that I was feeling a lot of depressed feelings. Um, I told my mom about it and she said, you know, let's, let's go to a psychiatrist. And well, before, before we talk about that, I'm just wondering, like, I mean, 10 years old, like I used to teach fifth graders, which is, you know, that's used to teach little me. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. And I can't imagine, I mean, that takes a lot of maturity as a 10 year old to say, Hey, I feel this way and go to to their parent and talk to them. What, what did it feel like to you to be depressed? It's see, it's hard because I was 10. So it's Mm -hmm. hard to remember everything in full color. Mm -hmm. But I do remember, uh, just like a dulled feeling, um, like, going to school and not really being excited about anything, sort of wondering, uh, hmm, you know, I remember used when I used to look forward to things and there's not really anything I look forward to. Um, and there was also a whole element of uh, being, I guess, sobered to reality of, you know, starting to perceive people in different ways. So my, uh, there is a lot of addiction in my family, but my, dad was struggling with addiction to alcohol um Mm -hmm. when i was actually throughout my whole life um wow and it's when you're really young you don't notice that kind of thing so when i was 10 i was getting to that point where i was just starting to notice it which is why my mom is the one i confided in and Mm -hmm. said this makes me really sad Mm -hmm. um and uh told her about my feelings you know i had a lot of feelings of like what am I looking forward to in life? Um, very, very like joyless feelings that 10 year olds normally, you know, uh, don't have yeah. unless they're suffering from something like this. Right. So yeah, I talked to her about it and, uh, she, uh, tried to help me. That's neat. So she, you guys ended up going to a psychiatrist. Yeah. So we went to, we went to a psychiatrist and, um, we, talked through my feelings um the psychiatrist prescribed an antidepressant zoloft Mm -hmm. and i began taking it Mm -hmm. um and at the time yeah well uh, what was it like like i'm just imagining when i was 10 years old i can i mean that's a pretty i I have some very vivid memories and so yeah what was like your memory of actually going to the office what were you thinking and feeling and was that weird to go to a psychiatrist and talk about so weird yeah i mean memory is so funny Mm because you remember like just these little snippets and it's often unreliable in that it's not exactly how things happen but it often embodies how things happen at least in how your emotional brain remembers it so i remember you know walking into the office and one thing i vividly remember is the psychiatrist saying you know, Spencer, and obviously she's giving the 10-year-old explanation. She says, Spencer, your uh, your brain doesn't make enough of this chemical called serotonin. And serotonin, you know, keeps you afloat and keeps you happy. And you you don't have enough of it. So what we need to do is give you a pill that will give you more serotonin. Hmm. Um, what did you think when she said that? Were you like, oh, that makes sense? Or I was a really like logical kid mm-hmm. and a really analytical kid. Like my on Saturday you? afternoon, <laughs> yeah, on Saturday afternoons, I literally instead of watching cartoons, asked my parents to make math tests for me to do. Um, wow. So yeah, that was me. Um, I can I, okay. So I have to say, I've seen him play like puzzles and board <laughs> games, and this makes total sense now. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Last night we were. Uh, at uh, Laura's place in Nashville, we were playing this uh, this strategy super game. nerdy strategy yeah. game called uh, Splendor. Splendor, 
and uh yeah spent more hours than we'd care to admit just uh freaking out over every little aspect of the game yeah it was intense Um, man (laughs) but anyway i was a kid who was really analytical who yeah loved chess loved puzzles loved Mm -hmm. math and i think part of that even relates to the depression and that those were safe things for me Mm -hmm. um anything that didn't involve emotion was a very you know i knew it wasn't going to hurt me numbers were not going to hurt me so i think that was a lot of why i you know retreated in a sense into my analytical brain and put emotions to the side that's really insightful Um, of you to see that now yeah well i definitely didn't see it (laughs) when i was 10 and you know there was a there were two sides i guess to what the psychiatrist told me um that analytical part of me really liked being able to put a pin in it and okay i get it you know this is the reason um there's a scientific basis for why i feel the way i do and now we're gonna fix it with this pill um at the same time it was uh it was it was kind of strange to be presented with the idea of like there's something wrong with you yeah of um you need you need a pill because you have an imbalance there's something wrong with your brain um yeah that's like a message i could see staying with you yeah you know, for a yeah. long time if that starts when you're 10 years old well and i think it isn't meaningless that that's what i remember mm-hmm. um that that's like sort of the one snippet that i do remember mm-hmm. um things got really complicated with the psychiatrist after that when you know i go on this medication and um there was a big conflict between my parents over me being on the medication um and I think this is like important because this is at the heart of things I want to explore mm-hmm. now in this podcast. You know, it's uncertain. There are a lot of different feelings about antidepressants, anti-anxiety pills, and how we diagnose and medicate the psychiatric industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of it has to do with trying to get to the heart of what these medications do. And a lot of it has to do with stigma. And in my case, it had a lot to do with stigma mm-hmm. where, um, you know, one of my parents thought you know hey get Spencer the treatment he needs and the other felt like um this is an insult you know this is an affront to say he needs this pill and really like rejected the idea and I think it was largely due to the stigma around and the perception of uh mental disorder and depression to have that reaction to want to really like reject it and say no my son doesn't have this problem Hmm. well and i think that's it's an interesting conflict because i think a lot of people one have internal conflicts like that yeah um when they're going through um mental disorder depression and considering medication but i think medication in general it is just like there's it's such a hot topic and yeah. whatever you're talking about but especially mental disorder because right. um because of the stigma you're talking about so that's mm-hmm. interesting that that happened totally um it yeah it's uh the stigma was really like at the heart of my struggle with it during that time and i do feel really lucky that uh, i came out of it okay because it was really messy mm-hmm. um that ultimately was why I ended up like stopping the medication. Um, How old were you when you stopped the medication? Uh, you know, I don't remember. I think I was on it for probably six months or so. Oh, that's not long. Yeah. So, you know, I, I went on it and then we planned like a follow-up visit with the psychiatrist. Um, and I think, you know, both from one of my parents having this view and from 
society even having a bit of this view Mm -hmm. i internalized it that uh i don't know if i want to do this i don't know if i want to be someone who's on a medication did Um, you did you experience any kind of like stigma at school or with friends or other family members is that kind of like is that did you feel like that kind of um is that why you wanted to go off of it um, I didn't share with anyone at school. I didn't tell any of my friends that I was on it. Uh, so I think it was all just like me as a sponge soaking up what was being said. And that was largely by um, the parent who was opposed to the mm-hmm. to the medication. Right. Um, and so then I sort of got on board with, uh, you know, buying into that view. And I didn't want to be perceived. I didn't want to see myself as someone who was weak, someone who needed this medication. Um, so, you know, ultimately... Because guys aren't weak. Right, guys aren't weak. <laughs> right. Um, but, yeah, and I think that also plays a role. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess another conversation for another right. day. Ultimately, um, the uh, the parent who was very against uh, the medication persuaded me to go in for my checkup and to lie. Um, wow. And to say that I was fine. And that I didn't have any desire for any help anymore, that I felt completely fine. Um, and so I did. I went in and said, oh, I, I don't even remember saying those things I said before. I don't even remember feeling hopeless or like I wasn't going to be happy. I just know that I feel fine. I feel happy. I don't think I need these pills. Um, and the psychiatrist, did she believe you? Or did, or did you see? Did she, Did you feel like she was kind of seeing through it? I think she saw through it a bit, but at the same time, like her hands are tied. Mm -hmm. She can't, you know, if I keep saying this, if I keep saying I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. She can't say, no, you're not. I insist. So she said, yeah, we can. uh," She didn't have me stop cold turkey or anything, which is really like a disastrous thing to do with these pills. Mm -hmm. Um, But she had me, yeah, ease off of them. She said, um, even though she, you know, she really did question me. She said, you don't remember saying this? Like, you you really didn't feel this way? And, you know, at the end of the session, she had to say, okay, we can, um, we can sort of, like, taper it off. We can reduce the dosage and move toward not being on it. Did you feel relieved when she said that? Or did you, like, how did it feel when you were, like, kind of lying about it and... I, I, was, I was probably thinking about like the Pokemon games I was about to play. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, like I don't know. I, 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 it felt, I, I guess I do remember a, the experience was uh, like caused a lot of anxiety. I felt super conflicted. I had a lot of internal conflict feeling like I was doing the right thing and getting off these pills, feeling like I was doing the wrong thing and lying about how I felt. And the internal conflict was just like mirroring the conflict around me that had been around me my whole life between my two parents. Hmm. That's really tough thing to be on the shoulders of a 10 year old. Um, I, I just, I think that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah, And I feel lucky, you know, it's, uh, after going off of them, I feel happy that it, uh, that I was okay. Cause you know, in retrospect, um, if I was still like having those problems, uh, that was like a very iffy decision. Mm -hmm. Um, and, Let's talk about what happened after that. Yeah. Um, like, did you conti- continue to struggle with depression? Um, did you find other ways to cope? Um, how, what was your story after that? Sure. Um, I think after that, I did experience depression time to time, but didn't really address what it was. 
And, uh, you know, these like conditions, depression, whatever it is, I don't think they're, they're not like in one sense, they're not like a physical disorder where you have an objective list of symptoms that is present until the disorder is gone. You know, they are like physical disorders and that they should be respected and validated like, uh, physical disorders are, but Mm -hmm. it's not like, you know, I caught depression and then I had symptom A and symptom B, um, you know, from time to time, I would get really frustrated and not know why. Um, from time to time, I could feel sad and not know why. Um, and so, you know, what I do now, personally now for me in life, I rarely experience any of these symptoms. And uh, I'm really interested, you know, if I do to address them in other ways. Um, and that's just like a personal preference. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but yeah, I mean, going from that point, there were definitely times where I was confused and I guess that confusion that I remember drives me to want to learn more and get people mm-hmm. talking more now to get to the heart of what these things are because they're so vague, they're so unclear and my depression was so unclear um, with, you know, what are, what are the symptoms and is this a sign I'm depressed, is it not? Um and I think we're only going to get more clarity by talking about these things that we don't talk about. Because if mm-hmm. I meet a stranger, like I'm not having this conversation with them <laughs> that I'm having with you, right? Yeah. Um, almost no one is. It's right. it's not something you share quickly. It's not something you share fully. Um, well, I think, and it's not something I've even shared quickly or fully really until now. Right. Well, yeah. it's... I, I think I heard you talk about like the dichotomy between how you perceive yourself yeah. when you're feeling depressed and yeah. how the world sees you. And I think that's really fascinating. I think that's partly why it's not discussed. Um, but like, how would you describe, you know, those feelings of depression and, and like how you perceive yourself versus how the world might see you? Sure. So I think like that difference comes from the individual feeling like they need to be perceived a certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, I think most people aren't comfortable uh, just like going out and putting on a depressed face Mm -hmm. or an anxious face or um, they they really like feel like they need to mask it. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's funny because like if someone has a cold, they don't hide they have a cold, right? Right. They are pretty open about like, hey, um, to their work, like they need a sick day. Mm -hmm. And with mental disorder um people don't really do that people think it's something they should hide wait out um get around um so i think like that difference in how people are perceived versus how they feel is all to do with how people feel like they need to change their behavior um so yeah i've definitely you know when i was younger i felt that that i needed to and that's probably why i didn't tell any of my friends at school Mm -hmm. it's not something it's not like oh hey this is what's new with me (laughs) i um got diagnosed with depression right um so yeah i think that's uh that's like has everything to do with why there's a disconnect with you know uh how people are perceived and how they feel and then how that disconnect creates like a a stigma and a distance between people yeah well I also, I also kind of wonder, you know, in today's society, we talk, there's like this very common saying of, oh, it's just a feeling. Yeah. And just go outside. 
yeah take a walk yeah and yeah. i mean i mean i have to say i'm guilty of saying that too to myself or mm. to other people mm-hmm. of like well just you know get, buck up come on <laughs> yeah. um but when do you think uh it goes from a negative feeling like sadness mm. or um or just something you know when does that change from a feeling to a disorder do you think for people it's a good question i know i think i think that might be beyond our well it's <laughs> pay grade no i think like it's beyond what we can talk about in one sitting and what we can figure out necessarily right, right now but it's like exactly what i want to talk about and move toward mm-hmm. because you know the like the way we handle it the way the psychiatric industry will do it is they will have a objective definition they'll say if you've experienced this symptom that symptom for x amount of time you're depressed when you're depressed this is the treatment um and i think you know it it does give you a sense that this is a very like fixed mm-hmm. thing when maybe it isn't wait maybe it ebbs and flows you can be depressed one day feel depressed and then not and you can have a depression that lasts years and you might not even know you're depressed you might think this is normal and in fact you're you're depressed um so like we try and put objectivity to these conditions when it's really hard to and you know in one sense we have to because we we have to treat them we have to have a means to diagnose them but i think diagnoses can be limiting in that you know they're based on really objective criteria for something that is really ebbing and flowing Mm -hmm. i think i think one that you're very brave to share your story um but i'm just curious like what would you tell like younger spencer uh, the, that you've learned now because you're 24 yeah, now and that yeah. was when you were 10 so now we- that i'm a wise old 24 year old <laughs> yeah, <there you> go. <laughs> um i'd say to be completely honest with yourself about how you feel exactly how you feel and to i think it's really easy to internalize what's said around you and how others are perceiving these issues you're the one experiencing it. You're the one feeling it. How do you feel? And then if you feel like you want to get help and talk to someone and if you feel like medication is appropriate or if you feel like, and it's hard if you're a 10-year-old, you don't know. But for anyone, if you feel like medication is appropriate or therapy is appropriate or whatever is appropriate, I would go with that. Um, so trusting yourself. Trusting yourself over, you know, even your friends. Um, like, you're, who knows what baggage anyone has that is motivating them to say, uh, to either validate or not validate the way you feel. Um, and yeah, I think like it's important to be really in tune with your own feelings. Um, which is something I think I'm like gotten better at in the last few years coming from a background of, I was the analytical chess playing kid who never like expressed emotion was the least vulnerable kid you'd ever meet um i think really the process of being completely honest with how i feel completely open really vulnerable really authentic has been the best key for me to understand my feelings whether it's you know a condition or not um to understand my feelings and i think like being in that state in that open state open with yourself is uh, the only real way you can like know what you're dealing with. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think, um, 
it, I think vulnerability, it's getting a lot more attention nowadays, which is really exciting mm-hmm. because I think, especially for guys, I think, yeah, yeah, you know, totally. having to put up that strong face. But how have you like found that way to be more vulnerable and more honest with yourself? What are some steps that you would suggest or, or work for you? <laughs> well, it's, uh, or is it just life experience? I mean, yeah, it's, I, I'm sure life experience plays a role. I think, uh, having compassion toward yourself, um, paying a lot of attention to your self-talk. I think there are a lot of therapies with a lot of value that um, focus on self-talk and uh, getting in tune with your internal beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny, like, if you were to walk by someone with schizophrenia, you would see them, you know, talking to themselves, mm-hmm. saying all kinds of unpredictable things. And you would say, wow, like that person has schizophrenia. And the label, the diagnosis schizophrenia lets us say, oh, they have that. They're that way. That's something, you know, boxed in and separate from the way I exist. Hmm. Um, And I'd encourage people to think less that way and realize, you know, maybe you're not saying things out loud in a schizophrenic way, but you are having thoughts all the time and your mind is crazy. Um, and I think meditation goes mm-hmm. a, a long ways toward getting a grasp of this, but your mind's going crazy and maybe not outwardly, maybe not verbally, but really in a lot of ways you're like that, you know, your thoughts are going all over the place and your brain is associating all kinds of crazy stuff together all the time. Um, and I think, you know, when you get in tune with your thoughts, there are a lot of therapies that can help you do this. Um, just saying every single thing you think and realizing what maps to what and then sort of pondering why Mm -hmm. that can get you in tune with you know i feel sad well i was just thinking about this and why was i thinking about this because i associated with this maybe why would that make me sad um and i think that's like a really that's been a really productive process for me in getting in tune with uh like core internal beliefs Mm -hmm. um and through that process uh like in the last few years i've realized okay maybe cognitively I don't believe this but maybe emotionally I believe something that's really harmful mm-hmm. like that uh, I shouldn't express joy or mm-hmm. that I should I should mask my emotions um, and that could be for so many reasons it could be because your parents told you to it could be because that's how you identify as a man mm-hmm. um, but whatever it is I think just getting to the core of what you believe emotionally and how your thoughts are wired and uh like investigating that in a non-judgmental compassionate way um that's how i would sum up like how i feel i've made the progress i've made that's awesome i think um for those of you listening it's been really cool to work with spencer on this project because i've just been really impressed with the compassion that you have for this subject and um and i think your goal for this podcast is is really built out of that you know Mm. just wanting to really help people and and share compassion and understanding um so i'm excited about i remember when we were first talking you were uh you were like wow you're you're really playing up the compassion (laughs) really playing up okay because we were in this like manipulative game i was like he's being being empathetic because he wants to screw me my game but But it's real like i yeah i care about this absolutely Absolutely. yeah and um let's uh are you ready to turn the tables yeah i think so um yeah absolutely let's get let's go for it
I've gotten a lot out of hearing the bits of your story that I've heard, and I know you can speak to a few different issues from different perspectives. So to start out, uh, what has your experience with mental disorder included? Yeah, um, thank you for saying that. I, I, um, I guess I kind of experienced a lot of different things, and all of them kind of stemmed out of like identity issues at different times in my life. So mm-hmm. I think when I was younger, um, it kind of came, kind of came out in the form of body image issues and eating disorder type stuff. And then later, when I was in college, it came out in the form of uh, depression, anxiety, um, yeah. for stemming after a big accident that happened in my life. So, um, so yeah, uh, just a, a bunch of things there. Really, um, we could delve into any of those. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess. Do you want to talk more about the big accident you had? I mean, this is something unique to you that. Uh, it's a really unique uh, circumstance to have a discrete event uh, bring on issues like depression or uh, a disorder or just a struggle. Um, so do you want to just share what happened? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of funny. I feel like later in life I keep talking, saying the story. So I'm like, I'm surely it's boring by now but because I feel like I say it a lot. <laughs> but I'm glad people still <laughs> want to hear it. So, um, yeah, when I was a sophomore in college, I was uh, working as an athletic trainer assistant, and so I was helping out with the football team And uh, before the semester even started, um, and a huge storm came, and mm-hmm. we all hopped on a golf cart. I don't remember this at all, but we were riding back, it was storming, and lightning hit a tree that we were riding underneath, wow. and a huge tree limb broke off and hit me in the head. And then I fell off the golf cart and hit my head on like the, a curb, basically. Mm-hmm. And my head uh, basically burst open. I was bleeding like crazy. Um, was rushed to the hospital in, in an ambulance, and um, and spent some time at the hospital. Um, doctors kind of checking me out, uh, get you know getting a CAT scan, and um, I was right. uh, just trying to recover there. So um, so yeah, I actually like didn't even take a break from school. I just decided I was fine. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was still kind of like hobbling, like couldn't, I was in a wheelchair and like, I was just like, yeah, yeah I'm fine. And, um, and now like looking back, I can see like, I just, um, I, I just have a really hard time dealing with like negative emotions or, or like pain or like mm-hmm. anything like that. So I was just really determined to be positive and I was like joking with people. I'm like, Oh, I'm fine. You know? Mm, yeah. And, um, and I had no idea like how big of a deal that this brain injury was. Um, yeah. I think part so of So you're it, sort of putting on a face afterward. Yeah. When, and, and it obviously the gravity of having your head, uh, <laughs> you know, open up and an injury like that, uh, I don't think hardly anyone can understand if they haven't, if that hasn't happened. Yeah. I mean, I was putting on a face to everybody, but also to myself. Cause I mean, I couldn't even like walk in a line. Like I, my balance was completely off. Um, mm. I had 
I, I went to the doctor and he was like, yeah, you're clinically uh, mentally retarded. And I was like, what does that even mean? And um, but I had virtually no short term memory. So um, I couldn't even remember like where I was supposed to be at a given time. My thoughts were really disorganized all the time. Wow. Um, I went from being a starting freshman on a college softball team to uh, losing my spot and uh, having to take God, a yeah. year off and uh, went from being like an A student, really um, high achiever and to being almost like flunking out of college. So yeah, yeah. it was, it was wow. kind of rocked my world. <laughs> so very much mind and body. Um, yeah. That's, I can't imagine how brutal that was, I guess, in the immediate aftermath. You said you don't even remember when it happened being in the golf cart. What was your first memory after? Um, well, I, I do have like one weird memory. I, I remember like my head being really warm, which is, was the blood. Huh. <laughs> so, oh my God. um, and I remember some, I remember like somebody cradling my head cause that was the head trainer rushed over and he was just cradling, <sighs> holding my head together and yeah. talking to me. So I, I kind of vaguely remember that, but yeah, I, it was kind of funny in the hospital. I, um, apparently I was like t- a 10 second tom like from 51st dates yeah i was like yeah. hey so why am i here oh that's funny and then so the i short would term say it again just, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly so um so yeah i think it didn't i was it didn't really hit me until probably like a month after of like mm-hmm. i i just realized like this could be the rest of my life um, wow so and, even the awareness of what had happened just took some time to set in because you started with such a difficult time with short-term memory yeah it yeah i mean you just you don't remember what you forget (laughs) so um so yeah i mean and everybody was kind of like like there was something a little off about me and and i think people around me kind of realized that um Mm -hmm. more than i did at the time um but so i i ended up having to go to like brain therapy (laughs) yeah um so uh, like three times a week i would meet with a neurologist a physical therapist a speech uh therapist so Um, it was like physical therapy for your brain and rebuilding a lot of those connections that had been lost and mm -hmm. you know heuristics and whatnot yeah exactly and and that's when like i started getting really depressed because Mm. um i would go three times a week to this thing first of all finding a ride there was like for some reason, it was very hard. I mean, not for some reason. Because of my brain injury, I couldn't. Yeah. I, I had a really hard time setting a schedule for that. So it was always really stressful finding yeah. a ride there and back. Um, and so... Did you have someone with you who could really like help you and pick up the slack? Or were you... Because I mean, I can't even imagine <laughs> navigating this alone, setting appointments and uh, taking yeah. care of your entire health that has just been devastated on yeah. your own. You know, that that's probably like one of my weaknesses. I'm very like independent. So I, I was like very resistant to anybody helping me, but I gotta give a shout out to um, Doug, my like athletic trainer at the time. He was my softball. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he really, he made sure I was going to doctor's appointments. And yeah. um, he actually came with me to a bunch. Um, and then my roommate at the time, uh, we happened, this was crazy. We happened to have the same major and yeah. had all the same classes that semester. So she would literally be like, okay, Laura, it's time to go to class now. And I would like Aww. go with her. <laughs> so that is, yeah. That's great. So she's, I will be forever indebted to Jamie Knoll. But um, 
but anyway I um yeah it was really really challenging and um I would go to these you know at these brain therapy places I would look around and I would see people paralyzed or people not even able to talk and I was like I'm not one of these people am I and I just Mm. as time went on I started to doubt more and more of like maybe I am like Mm. these people and maybe this is going to be the rest of my life and that was really scary for me yeah I bet and you said that you just for a while it didn't set in what exactly had happened and the implications of what had happened um so I mean did that sort of go hand in hand where you mentioned uh there was this process of becoming aware that you had issues with short-term memory physically you were struggling mentally you were struggling um did the depression sort of come in at the same time as that awareness and was it intertwined with seeing other people and sort of the comparing because I it seems like it would have a pretty big effect to be around paralyzed people and be questioning you know at what state am I how just how uh damaging has this been yeah I think it was that and then like I mean I think I don't think anybody around me knew how much like pain I was going through it like um emotionally because I was really good at joking and and, Mm. like even when I was like walking and I'd fall over like I'd just be like oh my gosh you know and everybody would kind of laugh with me but I mean I I used to be a really good athlete and so when I started to realize like this isn't coming back like this is really scary um I think privately I would just be you know in a really dark place even though I didn't right. really show that to people yeah. and then um you know I was going you know I was going to this uh I went to Wheaton College which um in my world my evangelical Christian world that was like a really big deal to get in there and mm. to go there and I was in a um major where a lot of people were pre-med so really mm-hmm. type a people and um, I was failing all these classes around these brilliant people and I just felt like um, the biggest loser and um, I, and you know even like professors um, would kind of I would take a uh, what are those um, tests like multiple choice was really hard yeah. for me mm-hmm. and so I would lose my spot and I would lose my my train of thought I couldn't remember things and I would just go off me like I really did my best but I don't, I couldn't remember the answer, like, and they would just look at me like I was crazy, you know, and I did, I sounded crazy, I was like, I could, I lost my track of where I was in the test, but here you go, I did my best. (laughs) What a, what a weight um, on your shoulders. People who are depressed or have mental disorders often, I think, feel like they need to hide things, Mm -hmm. Um, and often they develop those struggles in a really different way from you, you know? A lot of people might feel depressed over a long period of time, not really know why. It's like emotional pain without context. Mm-hmm. Um, you had this really discreet event and then the realization of what had happened and became depressed. Why did you feel like you needed to hide your pain and laugh it off? Um, I think I just had really bad coping mechanisms. Like I, I just didn't know how to sit with a painful thing. I, I think even now I kind of struggle if somebody shares something with me. My first instinct is to be like, well, hey, look at this positive part, you know, uh, yeah. um, or well, or, or kind of make a joke about it and lighten the mood. And so I think that's just like my personal struggle. Like I, I have a hard time sitting with 
um, difficult feelings. And I think part of me, whenever I, I, I think just coming from a belief of like, I should be perfect, nothing should be able to, um, to really penetrate me. If I was perfect, then nothing would hurt mm. me. And right, so yeah. I think when this happened, I just didn't know how to like, I didn't have, I didn't have the words to, or the ability to go to someone and say, I'm not okay. Like this yeah. is really freaking me out and I'm yeah. really in a dark place and I don't know what to do. So, so you just had to sit with that yourself in private. Yeah. I mean, thankfully somebody was like, maybe you should go to counseling. And so I was like, well, why mm. not? <laughs> and so I went and I remember even just saying like, like, oh, well, this happened, and it's not that big of a deal, you know, like, about my brain injury. Like, <laughs> Even explaining it, you felt like you had to put it in a narrative of, of yeah. shrugging it off. Well, and I think I was so scared. I think people who have mental disorders feel this way. Like, I was so scared of someone saying, you're making this up. This isn't that hard. Like, wow. you need to have tougher skin. And because, I, I mean, I think I've had people say that to me because I, I, I think I'm a little more really? sensitive than other people. You've had people say to you that how, how is it tell you to to buck up about you know having your head split open and a traumatic injury that took you a long time to recover from well yeah i mean i think like nobody's perfect and i think when you know um when somebody goes through something hard they need a yeah. lot of attention and they need a lot of grace and sometimes sure. it's really hard to give somebody that when you have your own stuff going on um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, and I, th- and I think, you know, I'll, I'll take responsibility. Like I, I was really bad at communicating, like I'm really struggling. Um, so it just would come out in weird moments. And so I'm sure it came off as kind of selfish uh, and self-absorbed, but, but yeah. Huh. Um, but counseling for me was, was amazing. It was like, I was all of a sudden, into in a world where it was okay to talk about your feelings and and you were validated for them yeah because so, well i mean it's a two-way street right it's there's the part of it that is sure it's hard when you don't communicate and it comes out in one big moment but also you know why weren't you communicating it might go back even further than that i'm sure that has to do with validation right oh yeah absolutely like it i think um you know I, I always felt like a perfect person is not brought down. Like they yeah. don't, um, they're happy and they're cheerful and they don't think about themselves. They don't talk about themselves. They're about other people. And mm. I think I just had a really screwed up, um, you know, just belief system about how to care for yourself. Sure. Um, yeah. And so I, I'm really grateful for that, even though it was, it was, um, speaking of the redeeming part of difficult things, like I think the redeeming part of that whole experience was learning uh, more about self-care and yeah. learning um, just self-acceptance and learning like perfection is, is unachievable. Oh, and yeah. Everyone goes through really hard things. Yeah. I mean, I the title is of this podcast is Redeeming Disorder. And right. I think a big part of that is disorder is the opposite of order. It's necessary. It, it must exist mm-hmm. somewhere and sometimes. And, you know, order can't be perfectly maintained. So part of redeeming the uh, perception of a lot of disorders is seeing them as just that disorder and something natural and something people shouldn't be ashamed of. Um, 
And I hope that'll make us be able to build this place where people can take things and experiences that are usually kept in the dark publicly and can bring them to light and share them. Yeah, um, I agree. I, I think when I love that term bringing things to light because there's something, you know, when you hide things and when you don't, um, conf- or for me, when I didn't confront those feelings of mm-hmm. like, I'm really struggling here. Um, mm. When you don't confront that, it's um, you can't get help. And so yeah. I think bringing things to light, um, even when you're just sharing your story, like we're doing on this podcast, mm-hmm. I think it can help somebody. Um, yeah. Because we all, we all go through crap. Um, it's just part of being human. And so, um, yeah, I'm excited for that and just helping people see the redeeming part of going through tragedy. Absolutely. And I loved how you talked about, you know, counseling. If you want to get into that, I think that's such a useful resource that can be really helpful. And uh, there's been so much uh, research and differing opinions and development around the idea of depression and how to deal with it or any mental disorder and how to deal with it. Uh, And I actually read this New York Times article the other day um, that talks about that complicated history um Mm -hmm. in a really helpful way i we should put it in the we'll put it in the show notes for Mm -hmm. people to read um but it talks about you know different theories and how the theory of a chemical imbalance which is what my psychiatrist told me that i had how that came about with uh experimenting with or not experimenting but using other drugs like ipronizid in 1951 uh and seeing the effect of that on mood uh, led to this pushing of uh, serotonin altering drugs and a theory around depression with Prozac and Zoloft. Um, And one really interesting point that the article makes is that uh, even though we we don't know everything, we have found that uh, antidepressants and counseling together often are very helpful. Yeah. Um, I, I, so, I think yeah. it really depends on like the circle that you talk to. So like I growing up in the like more evangelical Christian um, background, I think mm-hmm. um, like counseling was more okay than like using um, than than you know getting medicine or going to see mm. a psychiatrist. And so um, so it's I love hearing your story because it's so different than like like I didn't even think oh that's a something I it wasn't an option that I ever considered because right. it wasn't something I grew up believing like oh okay you can do that um, totally yeah. so yeah I really do I want to learn more through this podcast about the use of medicine with therapy or you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. yeah I think it's there's so much to explore with the way uh, medication works um, and you know it's it was what the psychiatrist recommended for me but with you it's awesome that counseling played such a big role. Um, And it's interesting, you know, our stories do contrast where you had a discrete event cause uh, just a cascade of hard feelings and hard real issues, whereas my depression was kind of confused and muddled and hazy at times. Um, And that article does talk about how the author who was a doctor prescribed this patient who was diagnosed with cancer, Mm -hmm. prescribed her uh, Prozac for her depression that resulted from the cancer. And I think it's still very much an area to explore, you know, whether uh, 
the treatment should be different in mm-hmm. these different cases, whether there are different cases and different types of depression. Um, so it's it's a complicated picture. Um, yeah. I guess how did uh, how did counseling interact with your depression? Where, um, you know, I described my depression as like a dulled, joyless feeling. Would you use like a similar? set of adjectives or <laughs> no was it, was it different <laughs> no mine was very dramatic I think for me it was like am I is my work is my am I valuable anymore mm. like it was very um intense and involved like a lot of emotion where I emotion that I didn't know what to do with um yeah and yeah. so um yeah just huge questions about my identity and um, whether, you know, my life was even worth living without my identity as an athlete or as a high achieving, um, student. So, right. yeah. So it, what I think, um, I think that the dull emotions kind of maybe came later in yeah. life as I struggled with, with things because of my brain injury, like with work, um, just feeling kind of listless and like, this isn't, um, this is really joyless life. Definitely sure, that okay. came later, but at that particular time, it was pretty pronounced, uh, dr- dramatic emotions that came out with that depression. So, so it was almost like there were different layers of it, that there was a depressed feeling of you're questioning your identity, which is being threatened, and you've, you feel like things are being taken from you almost, mm-hmm. and then later comes a different kind of depression. Did you feel like these... Uh, I guess bouts of depression had start and endpoints, or were they just vague and came and went? Yeah, I think I think for me um, they were a little bit more vague, and I think part of it had to do with you know um, just where I was in my life. So I think you know after the brain injury, that year was pretty pronounced. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but then you know after that it. Um, with every like life change that happened, like after I got married or after I got engaged or once I started a new job. And I think as I get older, when I, because um, I do think like my personality and I'm just a little bit more prone to depression and even maybe anxiety. Mm. I, I think now I've just developed better coping strategies. I learned, I've learned how to like listen and be like, oh, something's not right and I need mm, to take care sure. of that now. Um, and I think I know how more to take care of it. Whereas before, I think I would just bottle it up and push it away until it yeah. would just kind yeah. of explode. I, I'm really glad that you feel that way now that you can talk about it, take care of it. Um, and that's all. Awesome. I wish I had been your friend when, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when all this happened. But yeah. um, how did it differ or how has it differed your ability to be forthright and, uh, and share and get help as far as the physical problems you had after your injury and the mental problems you had. Do you find that although you could talk about one, you couldn't talk about the other? Uh, did one come up more in counseling? Um, you know, it's so interesting because it really depends on who you talk to. Like, I will talk about my brain injury with somebody, and sometimes they'll be like, oh, well, so you know, did your skull crack, you know, and like, mm. well, then you're okay. You know, that that's kind of like their, 
you know, they're maybe not as empathetic. <laughs> Whereas mm, yeah. sometimes people... You could say that. Yeah. Whereas sometimes people, um, you know, if I share my story, they're like, oh my gosh, that must have been crazy. And I'm like, yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> but, but then when it comes to mental health, uh, I find... I, and I think this is why we connected because you weren't like neither of us were weirded out about talking about it. When yeah, first night, yeah. You were like, oh yeah. Some health. people, if you jump into being really vulnerable, it's they're like, whoa. Yeah, exactly. Um, I um, think we both are kind of yeah. comfortable going there quickly. <laughs> exactly. It'll there'll be silent and they just don't know what to do with it. So, mm. um, so yeah. I mean, I think that's why I'm kind of passionate about this podcast because I want I want it to be more okay. Um, mm. And then. You know, with I think with the brain injury, the thing that it has in common with mental disorder is that a lot of those things were invisible. I may have been talking and and walking like a normal person, but mm-hmm. my brain was was very much injured and still healing. And I'm still learning this, but I think the big lesson that I've got out of the past ten years since that brain injury was stop trying to be perfect and trying to fit into a certain mold and just learning to accept yourself as you are Mm -hmm. and just you being is value right there um i think everyone matters and i think so many people are afraid that they don't matter um and so now um yeah i think my the big phrase i use is growth over perfection i um, that's I, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love it. I think for, I work with a lot of people who are trying to lose weight, you know, and with my background with like body image issues, I'm just like, guys, don't aim for perfection. It is elusive. <laughs> yeah. You'll never get there, but just aim for growth. And I think you can't argue with that. As long as you're heading in that direction, that's something to celebrate. I love that. I think, you know, your story just embodies like a growth mindset where you had discrete hard things happen to you and you embraced them or at least took them in stride on a continuous journey. Um, and you know that uh, sometimes symptoms might crop up and you just work toward growing. And it sounds like the injury almost gave you just a different perspective where as it took those things from you, how you identified as a great athlete, as a great student, um, it probably made you dig really deep. What's your perspective on it now as far as how it made you as a person versus uh, who you would have been? That's funny. I think about this a lot because for a while I used to compare myself to the Laura before the brain injury. Mm-hmm. And that was that was really hard because I'm not going to lie, the Laura before the brain injury, she was she kicked butt. <laughs> um, and so it was hard. Um, but I think... The Laura before the brain injury was on this treadmill that never ended of running and running and running and trying to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And I think I was forced off of that treadmill against my will, but I'm so grateful because um, I'm allowed, I I learned to accept myself for who I really am. And and I'm no longer really running after this identity that I think, oh, this will this will finally give me validation or this will finally Mm. make me feel loved. Um, I no longer feel that way. And I just I think it's so important to be true to who you are. I I remember you saying like um, when you it's you know, the more self-accepting you are, the more accepting you are of other people. And I totally agree with that. Yeah. Um, I've definitely seen that in my life. I think one of the 
great things that's come out of you know my struggle my story is that I'm way more compassionate for people who are struggling because Mm -hmm. I get it I've been there and also I I think um, yeah I just I I get it in a new way and um, and yeah I mean you I I think that's a big gift to have gotten that early in life rather than still be you know in my 60s and, and on that corporate treadmill trying to um, become the best of the best. How did, what was the perfection you were chasing really early on? Um, When you were young, what was it that you thought you needed to get or be? Um, I thought I needed to be skinny (laughs) and I thought I needed to be liked by everybody. And um, I thought I needed to be uh, unselfish and, um, quiet and uh, and just basically uh, the best of everything so um, if I played basketball I should be the point guard if I played mm. you know um, softball I should be the catcher or the pitcher you know just being the leader and um, if I if I led a Bible if I did a Bible study I should be the leader you know <laughs> just yeah <laughs> um, I, I was insanely egotistical in that way yeah. like I need to be the best um, sure yeah but um, you can I mean I feel like you can be that way with anything right perfectionism yeah. <laughs> like I'm sure there are Buddhist monks who are like I am the best best freaking meditator and my robes are better than yours oh, that's um, awesome yeah that, <laughs> yeah that's true it's, though you can take it anywhere perfectionism has a way of seeping into anything if you let it i'm very grateful that as i've gotten older um i've been able to see different ways to see the christian walk and realize like oh it's really not about um achieving a certain image it's really about being authentic mm. um and so, um, and in I think grace. that's a message that can transcend a lot of religions yeah. and beliefs oh, totally. too. You know, we, we do have some different beliefs, but I think we both almost get to the same place. Yeah. And I love that you have, that you're of really strong faith. I'm not religious, but I see that as so powerful. I think that's a really cool tool for you and to have turned that from something that, uh, you know, you were in a mode of chasing God's love that was just unattainable to not you know, seeking it, but finding it and finding strength in that, uh, is inspiring to me. Thanks. Yeah. And Um, I, I like that. Um, I kind of like that we're doing this podcast together because, um, our backgrounds are so different and, mm -hmm. you know, even maybe our belief systems are a little bit different, but, um, I just think it brings, um, an interesting perspectives through to mental disorder. And I, I'm excited about that. Yeah. I mean, it's been a, it's been a crazy path for you and, it's been uh, not many people have that experience of going through life and having one set of struggles, having this life and foundation changing event happen and then that altering those struggles, but also forcing you to sort of find a new path. And I'm I'm inspired really to by the way you've come through it and the healthy attitude you have now. Oh, thanks. I loved hearing your story. I'm hoping other people will get as much out of it as I did. You know, I, I got more of it at this time than just hearing the bits I did before, um, getting to know that struggle you went through more deeply. And I hope people not only get a lot out of it and can relate to the things that are relatable and can find out about the things that aren't, but I hope they want to share stories of their own. And to everyone listening, 
we this is what we want to keep the podcast going. We're going to have someone on every week to talk about an issue that's important to the world, to you. So if you have something you can share, if you have something you've struggled with, we want to hear from you. We want to uh, get that dialogue going. Um, you can reach us on Twitter. My Twitter is at SpencerBGM. And Laura, is Twitter good for you too? Yeah, you can reach out to me at uh, BeFreeHC on Twitter or Instagram, same both ways. But um, definitely reach out, join the conversation, and let us know if there's anything you want us to cover in the next few podcasts. But more than that, we just are so appreciative for all of you for listening, if you're still listening, and we can't wait to bring you more.